Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Every year that I've taught about religions, I spend a large amount of time teaching students about Israel, the history of the region, the lives of Palestinians, the significance of Jerusalem, the difficulties of archaeological research in the region, and I do my best to bring them perspectives from all sides of the long-standing disagreements over the borders of Israel, the wars that have plagued the area, and the fate of the Palestinians living inside the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. We talk about the border walls, security, settlements, the discussions of Judea and Samaria, the surrounding nations, and much more. There is an incredible amount of resources on this topic. In the class, we've read pieces from the book Being Palestinian, Personal Reflections on Palestinian Identity and Diaspora, by Professor Yasir Suleiman, including a piece by Columbia, Missouri local resident Ibtisam Barakat. We watch Straddling the Fence, in which Thomas Friedman of the New York Times interviews people living on both sides of the West Bank border walls, including settlers and people walled into the Arab town of Calkilia. We look at an overview of the history by Ezra Klein's Vox Channel. We study the collaboration between scholars Dan Cohn Sherbach and Dahoud Al Alami. We have Palestinian guest speakers and Jewish Zionist guest speakers, two of whom have been guests on this show. We read the book of Genesis, describing the covenant of God and Abraham, and more. We debate the issue. The students obviously can't walk away experts studying the issue in two weeks. But they walk away feeling like they have a basic understanding of this topic that they can address in the coming years. And that matters to me. So I wanted to create an episode discussing Israel and Palestine with someone who doesn't really have a personally emotional stake in the situation, but who cares deeply about the situation. I wanted to talk to someone who cares about the peace process but who cares about both sides in the peace process. And by saying that, I'm not saying that other people don't care about both sides. 
I also wanted to talk to someone who has a unique specialization to give the episode a bit more flavor than just going over the situation's talking points, which can be found in a lot of fine publications. So today's guest is Dr. Daniel Hummel. Dr. Hummel is a scholar, writer, researcher, and teacher of religion, politics, and foreign policy in the United States and the modern Middle East. He is currently a Robert M. Kingdon Fellow at the Institute for Research in the Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Hummel is also a specialist in the concept of Christian Zionism and has a forthcoming book from the University of Pennsylvania Press entitled A Covenant of the Mind, Evangelicals, Israel, and the Construction of a Special Relationship. Dr. Hummel's unique take on the Israel-Palestine situation is tinted with his own expertise in Christian Zionism, and we discuss that issue in a lot of depth in this conversation as well. Dr. Hummel is also a contributor to the Washington Post in the Middle East Current Events section, which matters to me because he is engaged in the mainstream conversations on this topic. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Dr. Daniel Hummel from the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I am here today with Dr. Dan Hummel at the University of Wisconsin. Um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be here. I'm hopeful if you can just uh, start off by introducing yourself, a little bit about your role, your job, and kind of where you are in the world. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, I am currently at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I am at what's called the Institute for Research in the Humanities. And uh, I just got my PhD in history from the University of Wisconsin uh, a couple years ago in 2016. And I'm what is called a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, and postdoctoral means after the doctorates. And a fellow is someone who basically um, gets an office and gets a salary to write up uh, their research that they did as a, as a PhD student into a book. So I'm currently uh, finishing a book on the modern Christian Zionist movement uh, from 1948, which is when the state of Israel is established up until the present. Fantastic. So the way that I found you and the reason I invited you on this podcast is I found some of your work in the Washington Post. And I can tell that uh, you are interested in the nation of Israel. You're interested in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You're interested in the concept of Zionism. So can you kind of go over a little bit about your history and how and why Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all these things became an area of interest in your life? Yeah. Um, you know, whenever I, I try to think about this, um, uh, as a historian, I know that, that everyone sort of makes their own uh, stories about where they come from and why they're there. And um, often we put a lot of too much sort of um, sense that there was inevitability to, to what happens um, later in life. And so I don't I can't really find sort of that thing deep in my childhood that made me want to, to study this, uh, you know, 20 years later. I do. You know, I grew up in a very 
um, Christian household where um, we didn't talk a lot about politics and stuff, but definitely the state of Israel was sort of this uh, special topic. Um, I remember I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is sort of a center for um, evangelical Christian organizations to 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 have their headquarters. So I remember I read the Left Behind books as a kid, and those are these apocalyptic novels where Israel plays a role. Um, but I didn't really when I when I got to college, I didn't really um, decide I wanted to do uh, research in the Middle East uh, until really grad school and. Um, I ended up uh, going to Colorado State University for my undergraduate degree, and I got a master's in history. And I had this really great professor who um, studied the Arab world, and I took all the classes I could with him, and I ended up deciding I wanted to do something, uh, study something related to the Middle East. And um, that led me to thinking about the you know, really important relationship that the U.S. has with the state of Israel and how a lot of um, the ways that the U.S. interacts with the whole Middle East um, involves Israel. So once I got to the University of Wisconsin, um, I continued to, to read in those areas. And one thing that actually sort of just fell into my lap was the University of Wisconsin has a great exchange program with the Hebrew University in Jerusalem where students from here can go there for a year and uh, get a stipend and basically study in Jerusalem. And so I basically created a, a research project um, that let me do that. And um, I learned Hebrew, uh, modern Hebrew. The University of Wisconsin has Hebrew classes, which isn't always the case um, on college campuses. And so I was able to um, go to Israel in 2012 and 2013 um, and do research in the Israeli archives, uh, which was an exciting thing uh, that I thought would be fun to do. Um, and that's really how I became really involved in studying uh, this issue, sort of combining this, this, these opportunities and my sort of nascent interest in the Middle East with my background, which is in the evangelical world. I had a lot of sort of just built-in knowledge about how evangelicals think about the world. Um, and that drew me to the topic of, of Christian Zionism. And it doesn't hurt that the topic is always in the news. Israel's in the news all the time. Um, there's a lot of opportunities like at the Washington Post and other places where newspapers want people who have knowledge on the Middle East to, to sort of add their voice to the conversation. Uh, and so that's really been, um, I've, I've enjoyed researching it just, not just because it's interesting, but because it's a relevant topic and allows me to, to take historical knowledge, uh, mostly about the 20th century, but even going back further than that, uh, and try to contribute to the conversations today. When you landed in Israel in 2012, what were some of your questions that you were seeking to pursue in the archives? Yeah, that's. Um, I had a lot of questions about um, what Israelis thought about these Americans who were mostly Christian, who really liked Israel. And um, it's a very, Israel is um, a very different, it's obviously on a different continent, it's a very different culture than, than the United States. Um, and so I had a lot of questions about what they thought about American Christians. Um, I was very much interested in, um, today we see a lot of evidence of American evangelical interest in Israel. Uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, is very open about supporting Israel based on his Christian faith. 
Um, but but if you go back 50 years, uh, there weren't nearly as many evangelicals in politics and certainly not evangelicals who were talking about the state of Israel. So I was interested also on sort of the history of how evangelicals introduce themselves to the to the Israelis and the Israeli government. Um, and I was also, you know, when you're in another country, you just sort of want to learn the culture. I wanted to know what it was like to live in Jerusalem. I wanted to see all of the the religious sites. Um, to uh, travel around the country. Um, Israel is a very small country, but it's also got a lot of diversity in terms of topography. There's forests, there's deserts, there's uh, coasts, um, there's hilly areas like Jerusalem. Um, so I also wanted to just know what it was like um, to, to, live, um, to live in that part of the world. Uh, as well. Before we dive into some specifics and a lot of uh, really in-depth stuff, I'm curious what your favorite spot in Israel is. Like, if you were there, where would you want to go first? If you landed in Israel tomorrow, where are you headed first? Uh, There's probably two answers to that. Uh, One, which is the more, like, uh, uh, relaxing answer, is the the beaches in Tel Aviv are (laughs) amazing. Uh, And uh, there's a certain, I don't even know what it's called, uh, but there's a certain line of, of really nice hotels and they all are opened up to the beach and the beach is a public beach and uh, it's a great place. Um, I could spend a lot of time there, uh, particularly in the middle of a Wisconsin winter. I'd love to <laughs> I'd love to do that. Um, but I'm also, I also really like um, the old city in Jerusalem. It's, I mean, it's obviously a very stressful place. There's a lot of contention around every square inch of the place. Um, but it's also, you know, the center of, uh, three of the major world religions. Um, it's fascinating to meet and talk to people who live in the old city. It's still, there's still plenty of people that, uh, live sort of, um, within the walls of the city. And a lot of them are merchants that sell, um, that sell things to tourists, but there's children that go to school in there. And, uh, the old city is divided into four quarters, and one of the quarters is the Jewish quarter, one is the Muslim quarter, and then there's two quarters that are uh, different types of, of Christian faiths. But um, it's fascinating to just walk through, and, and you can sort of just, in a couple seconds, walk into a whole different um, religious uh, culture. And uh, so I, I really like that, that area, too. And there's so many things. Uh, my wife and I, would we, we lived only about 10 minutes away from the old city uh, for the year. And so we could just walk into it and every day you could find some new little crevice or some new little church or synagogue or mosque uh, that you didn't know was there uh, before. So it's sort of an endlessly fascinating place as well. Awesome. So there is a long history of tension in the region, as you have mentioned, and Israel was founded in 1948. But long before that, whenever the population of um, like whenever the Jewish population started coming back, there was the... um, Zionist Congress, and there was a group of rabbis who went and visited the area, and they said that the bride is beautiful, but she belongs to another man. So Mm -hmm. there is a long history of tension in the region that has come to be known as the Arab-Israeli War or the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. So I want to do a sort of introductory discussion with you on an overview of the situation that you feel like everybody needs to know. So what are some of the most integral and important moments of the last 70 years in Israel that every person should know, in your opinion? Sure. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the, the, um, 
conflicts in what we now call uh, sort of the region of Palestine, which is a term that the Romans used for, for this area, go back a long time. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, that the same sort of dividing lines we have now have always been there. Uh, that's one of the things you learn as you go back in the history is that uh, there's a lot of times actually when most of the people in the region were at peace um, or it wasn't such a center of, of political intrigue. Um, but I would say the first real big event, um, for, particularly for the history of modern Israel, is in November of 1947 was the partition of Palestine, as it's called, which was uh, voted on by the UN and passed. And that's where the UN basically said, because of um, because of a lot of reasons, but because of the large Jewish and Arab populations in Palestine, uh, the UN decided to partition Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of the the modern state of Israel. Now, the uh, Jews uh, accepted that partition. The Arabs did not. And that led to the first Arab-Israeli war uh, in uh, all the way through uh, 1948. And in 1948, the uh, Israelis declare independence. Um, and, in, and that war continues on uh, past that. And that's sort of one of the formative moments in the Arab-Israeli conflict. That is sort of the formative moment of Israel. But also things that happened during that war, we still see today. Um, and one of them is this issue of um, Palestinian refugees. A lot of Palestinians, uh, Arabs at the time, Arab Palestinians, uh, fled the war area and um, they have not returned since then. And this is an outstanding issue that uh, sort of still um, is one of the main issues debated. Uh, another one is the borders of, of modern Israel. And um, these borders that uh, we're still debating now um, are ones that have roots in that partition de decision and in the war um, in, in 1948. So that's sort of a, a formative uh, moment when you see um, some of the battle lines that we still have today sort of, uh, sort of emerge. And what's really interesting about 1948 is if anybody goes and looks at that map, it looks significantly different than what you would see if you looked at a map of Israel today. That's right. Which I believe will take you into your next essential moment, won't it? That's right, yes. So um, just 20 years after uh, Israel is, is founded and we have this, this war, we get the, uh, the, the war in 1967. And this is sort of a, a very seismic event for both the Jewish world and Israel and the Arab world. Um, and this is um, a war where it's, it's a very short war. It's often called the Six Day War because that's how long, that's how long it actually uh, took. And that's in June of 1967. Um, and there's there's a lead up to the war. But the, the big takeaway is that Israel um, basically preemptively strikes um, the Arab countries around it, uh, Egypt, Jordan and Syria, and ends up, um, and they, they had reasons to preemptively strike. The Egypt had cut off a, a sea route, um, and there was a lot of tension on both sides. Uh, but the, the result of the war is that Israel ends up uh, occupying uh, a lot of land. It, they occupy the Sinai Peninsula. They occupy uh, East Jerusalem, which includes the Old City. Uh, they occupy the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and a place up north near Syria called the Golan Heights. And uh, these areas are are occupied. They're still called the occupied territories. Um, one area that Israel actually uh, annexed was East Jerusalem. And so that's another big debate that people talk about today 
and that actually um, the U.S. has recently weighed in on, uh, which is who owns Jerusalem or who gets to call Jerusalem their capital city. And both the Israelis and Palestinians acclaim Jerusalem as their capital city. Um, and this is still uh, sort of up for debate, but certainly the facts on the ground after 1967 make the city uh, essentially Israeli and it's, it's integrated into the um, Israeli uh, government. Um, and this war also creates, uh, it sort of builds off of that refugee issue. Um, and uh, with Israel occupying the West Bank, Israel is now occupying and um, overseeing uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. And these Palestinians aren't citizens of Israel, but they're also not citizens of any other country. And uh, this is sort of the situation that at every generation of leaders thought that this situation would be resolved relatively quickly, uh, but it has continued on and on and on. And so today we have millions of, of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank who are um, under Israeli military control. And they now have in the West Bank their own semi-autonomous government called the Palestinian Authority. Uh, but they aren't they don't have full citizenship in any in any country. And that's, you know, been one of these uh, another issue that uh, we haven't found a diplomatic solution to yet either. So what is the significance of the wall, the Western Wall in the 1967 war? Because I know that's a yeah. very important point as well for listeners. Yeah. So the the city of Jerusalem, particularly the old city, which is um, the part of Jerusalem that would have been around um, when. Uh, you know, going all the way back to before the time of Jesus, when it was the capital of ancient Israel, and then certainly during Jesus's time, uh, that that old part of the city um, is considered by Jews to be sort of their their eternal capital city, and um, the Temple Mount in particular, uh, where they the, the Israelites had their their temple, is considered the holiest spot in in Judaism. And so the Western Wall is a retaining wall from that old, old temple structure. And it's the only part of the, the, the temple structure um, that sort of has, uh, that is still around and that can be accessed by people. And so in 1967, um, when the Israeli troops sort of control this area, this is the first time, and this is how Israelis talk about it, this is the first time in almost 2,000 years that Jews have been able to go to this area and sort of um, pray or practice their faith in this area uh, uninhibited by outside powers. So going all the way back to the Romans, all the way through you know, the Ottomans and the British and every other occupying force in the region, this is the first time that sort of Jews are able to go to their own holiest site um, and, uh, and pray at it. And it's also a very um, important uh, area for just Israeli nationalism as sort of a symbol of the Israeli state and the continuity that the state has with Jewish history going all the way back to uh, the events in the Bible. Excellent. So we have, so far in our timeline, we've had from 1947 and 48 all the way up to the Six-Day War in 1967, where the Israelis uh, essentially reclaim a, huge parts of Jerusalem and then take over these occupied territories in East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank. So yeah. is it all good after that? <laughs> uh, obviously not. Uh, that's, uh, it, it, it's frustratingly um, doesn't move a lot, actually. I mean, there's definitely developments 
since then that are very important. Uh, Egypt and Israel make peace in the late 70s, uh, which is the first time that any uh, Arab state makes peace with the state of Israel. Um, in the 90s, Israel uh, signs a, an agreement with, the, with Jordan. And so there's a second Arab state that Israel is at peace with. Um, but these other outstanding issues about the status of Jerusalem, about the borders, about what to do with Arab Palestinians, uh, these issues remain um, remain unsolved. And um, if I could point you to just a third sort of big uh, event um, or, or sort of period, uh, if we go to the 1990s, we have the um, Oslo peace process, which is the attempt by uh, not just Israel and um, the Palestinian leadership, but even the U.S. And, and a lot of countries are involved in this process, an attempt to create what's called a two-state solution, which is to create a Palestinian state alongside Israel, um, which is, you can imagine, goes all the way back to the original partition plan. This was sort of the ideal that a lot of people wanted from the beginning. And the Oslo peace process is sort of the process that um, both sides agreed to to try to make this two-state solution work. And so one of the parts of that is to create a Palestinian authority, which basically will be, in the thinking, the uh, proto-government of a Palestinian state. And then the actual boundaries and borders of the states would be sort of decided um, as Israelis, uh, Israeli troops pull back from different parts of these occupied territories. Uh, and this is the, the same process that um, we still sort of are working in today. That Oslo peace process broke down in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And then there was another attempt during the 2000s called the, the roadmap uh, to try to sort of restart these issues. Um, the Obama administration had tried to try to do their own version of a peace process, but we're still in that process um, and there hasn't been um, any sort of advancement. I was watching a documentary made by Thomas Friedman from the New York Times called Straddling the Fence, where he goes and interviews people living on both sides of the border walls in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, and in mainland Israel. And he asked uh, young Israelis about the roadmap. And one of the young people in the video said, roadmap to where? Nobody knows. It was a really interesting moment. Um, one yeah. of the things I'm really curious about, and this is something that I've taken on sort of a nerdy interest in recently is the role and importance of president jimmy carter mm. in israel and i think that this is something that a lot of people need to be reminded about because he spent so much time in his presidency and his one term on the issue of israel um what is the significance of carter in in this in this entire situation yeah, so definitely uh, when when Carter was elected president in 1977, I don't know if many people thought this would be sort of the issue that he spent a good deal of his presidency uh, focused on. And he certainly didn't really have the credentials. I mean, he was the governor of Georgia. He had been to Israel, I think, once before being president, but he didn't have like a longstanding uh, passion for this issue. But he ended up uh, really seeing himself um, as a peacemaker, and he, Carter was a uh, is a, a very strong Christian, and, and he he really internalized those commands by Jesus to to try to make peace with your enemies, um, and so he he really saw the the situation in um, in Israel as one that could really use his detailed, consistent mediation, and he was building off of work that. 
uh, presidents before him, uh, President Nixon and President Ford and the Secretary of State uh, Henry Kissinger, they've been working on trying to get peace between Egypt and Israel for a while. But, but what really Carter brought to the table was his personal diplomacy and his insistence that both the leaders of Israel and Egypt and him all meet together and really hammer out um, over, you know, basically 13 days uh, at Camp David, uh, hammer out an agreement. And there's some really good um, there's some really good uh, books about those uh, those uh, negotiations and how tense they were, how. Um, Carter was often the one to sort of save everybody from just leaving and going their own ways. Um, and what eventually comes out of that is the Camp, da the Camp David Accords, which do provide for peace between uh, Israel and Egypt, but they also sort of bracket and sideline other issues that Carter had wanted to deal with, including what to do with the Palestinians and, and uh, sort of their ultimate uh, status. Um, but that was not something that was going to be able to, to take place along with the, uh, the peace agreement. And so since the since the 70s and when Carter was doing this, uh, he's had one of those uh, probably the most significant post-presidential career of, of any president, sort of staying in the spotlight, continuing to write about the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, and so Carter has continued after being president to, to try to continue to weigh in on the peace process. He's become uh, more and more critical of, of Israeli settlements. Uh, he was critical of those during his presidency, but as those have grown, his criticisms have grown of Israel as well. Uh, and so he, he continues to be uh, sort of a voice uh, calling for uh, restarting the peace process. And it is true that even the Oslo process and all the other processes afterward, they were basically modeled on what he did with Egypt uh, in the 70s. So he's sort of the precedent setter for the peace process um, the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, what I can, from what I can tell, he is definitely a visionary in the situation. One of my hypothetical questions I would ask him if I ever met him was, what would you do if you were put back in the Oval Office today? Like, what is your first motion on Israel if you are president again right now in 2018? I would just be so thrilled to, to hear his answer on that. Right, yeah. yeah. So... So I have a couple questions here. So I am a high school teacher, and we study these issues. Like, I make them do a deep dive on Israel whenever we study Judaism and whenever we study Islam. We study the significance of the country, of, the, of Jerusalem itself. We look at it in the scriptures, and it's a really great experience for the young people. So I want you to imagine for a second that you were a guest speaker in my classroom during our Israel-Palestine unit. What would you say to convince them that they should care about this situation? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, Americans have a on-again, off-again interest, I think, in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and, I, you know, th there's a lot of places in the world that have injustice and have, uh, you know, conflicts. So I, I don't necessarily think the Arab-Israeli conflict is, is sort of super exceptional um, in this nature. There's a lot of places uh, that, that we should probably uh, care about. But I think in particular, um, the Arab-Israeli conflict is, um, for one reason, uh, important because the U.S. relationship with Israel is such a key sort of diplomatic uh, relationship in, uh, in American history and in the way the U.S. sort of operates in the world now. So if you want to understand 
Um, a lot of the way reasons why the United States government uh, does what they do in the Middle East, you need to understand Israel and you need to understand this conflict uh, properly to, to sort of get, to sort of get a sense of that. Um, I also think the Arab-Israeli conflict is is an interesting case of how um, if you don't do a lot of research on on some on a conflict like this, you'll probably not get sort of to the heart of what the conflict is about and um, and you'll sort of you'll sort of misunderstand it. And this can happen in all different uh, parts of of the news and of history. Um, but sort of like one thing that that I always try to convey to people when talking about the Arab Israeli conflict is that it's not actually all about religion. And in fact, it, we tend to think of this part of the world totally in religious terms as sort of the, as, yeah, I even talked about it, as the center of these three great faiths. Um, but the Arab-Israeli conflict is a lot about uh, issues that transcend um, the, the location. It's a lot about nationalism. It's a lot about territory. It's a lot about rights and borders and feelings of security and justice. And those are sort of uh, issues that can um, affect all parts of the world, not just um, this this region. And so it's an interesting case study and a, an interesting way of, of trying to understand um, not only how do these conflicts sort of continue to go and why can't people uh, come to an agreement, but also how do Americans in general sort of understand these other parts of the world um, in, relation, in relation to themselves. We've talked a lot about parts of the peace process, Camp David Accords, we've talked about Oslo, um, we talked about the partition plans. Um, what Are there any proposals for peace or ideas that you've seen that haven't happened yet or that didn't work that you think are interesting for some unique reason? Yeah. Um, I'm uh, pretty pessimistic on sort of the diplomat, the ability of, of sort of a diplomatic solution to this problem, um, which doesn't mean I'm pessimistic on sort of the possibility of a solution. I just think um, th this conflict is so deep seated. Uh, it's it's almost, um, you know, there's mutually exclusive claims on both sides about who controls the city of Jerusalem, who whose land is this. I do think there are things outside of, of sort of diplomacy that have been interesting experiments and and show interesting signs. One of them is sort of joint um, economic uh, cooperatives between uh, Israel Jews and, and Arabs and Palestinians and Israelis, um, really binding together economically uh, the two uh, the two peoples in a way that um, hopefully in some years down the line. It'll just obviously make sense that uh, cooperation is better than than conflict. Um, and so th there's been examples of this actually in the West Bank where there are um, there are parks with different um, businesses in them, sort of business parks that are um, that are jointly owned. And, and there's workers from Israel and the West Bank uh, in there. So that's that's sort of one um way that I could see things improving uh, over time. Another one is there's, there's just a lot of attempts at dialogue across um, across community lines. And, you know, these it's, it's always hard to tell how much these affect the, the sort of diplomatic political problems. But there's definitely smaller cases where you can see um, dialogue mattering. And particularly when it comes around things like medical care or economic support or education. 
So that's that's one way that, uh, or that's another way that I could see um, improvement. But I am pretty pessimistic in terms of sort of finding some great uh, diplomatic solution, at least at this point, with the leaders we have both in Israel and on the Palestinian side. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of impetus on either side to um, to to find a diplomatic, a, a sort of a grand diplomatic solution at this point. Do Americans right now care about the peace process? Are we engaged as a nation? There's certainly parts of of the American public and the government that are very engaged. Um, and as with a lot of issues, it, it's the people who are most passionate about this issue. I would guess that most Americans don't think about this issue unless it comes by their newsfeed um, because something uh, happened uh, in Israel or, or in the Middle East that directly uh, relates to it. And I certainly don't think most Americans vote on this issue. There's a lot of issues closer to home, uh, economic issues that tend to drive uh, voters. But I do think there are certainly uh, segments of the American population that very much care about this issue. One of them being American Jews tend to care about this issue more than others for their obvious uh, connections to, um, to Israel. And another one are Christian Zionists, who, um, American evangelicals who, who have a particular interest uh, in this issue as well. So that's a great segue, because you have a book coming out next year called A Covenant of the Mind, coming out from University of Pennsylvania Press, which on your website is described as saying that it is the story of the religious, political, institutional, and international forces that emerged after the establishment of Israel in 1948 to transform evangelicals into fervent supporters of Israel. And you write extensively in mainstream publications about Christian Zionists, but this is a term that I think a lot of people maybe don't know about. So who are the Christian Zionists? Yeah, so Christian Zionists have been different people um, over the course of American history. There's always been a group of sort of a segment of American Christians who have, for mostly biblical reasons, looking at the Bible or theological reasons, have thought that there's some special role that Israel is going to play either in the present or in the prophetic future at the end of, of, of time. Um, and these, you can go back to some of the, the early Puritans were uh, talked in this way about the actual purpose of America or of their colonies was in some way to help fulfill um, God's purposes with the Jewish people. And that's sort of a, 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 a bizarre thing, I think, for a lot of people to think today, um, unless you're part of this, uh, this same movement today. And today, most Christian Zionists are conservative evangelical Christians who still um, insist that, or still sort of see the world through the lens of the Bible and their particular interpretation of the Bible that tells them that um, fulfilling God's will in part means supporting the state of Israel. And they have a lot of verses they'll, they'll cite for this. They often will cite a verse in, in Genesis that talks about how when you God says that he will bless those who bless uh, Abraham and curse those who curse Abraham and Christian Zionists see that see Abraham as sort of a stand-in for for modern Israel um, But it's I tend to think of Christian Zionists or any any Zionists who use sort of Christian theological arguments and, and Bible verses to support um, to, to sort of give reasons for why they support uh, the state of Israel and there's a couple big organizations that 
represent this group. Uh, the biggest one right now is called Christians United for Israel. Um, and they are um, a lobby group in Washington, D.C., and they meet with Congress people and they meet with the White House and they try to basically lobby uh, the U.S. government to be uh, to, to be friendlier to Israel, um, to give more aid to Israel and to sort of defend Israel against people who criticize uh, who criticize the state. Uh, so that's Christian Zionists uh, aren't all part of the, you know, the political movement, but the ones who are and the ones who are most engaged uh, on this issue uh, tend to be conservative, tend to be evangelical and tend to be uh, members of the Republican Party as well. What are some of the main theological differences between Christian Zionists and just regular Zionists, like Jewish Zionists? Like what's like the major like scriptural differences between the two? Yeah, so so that that um that verse I mentioned in Genesis, that's Genesis twelve three. That's a reading of that verse that most Jews that that would be foreign to them. So that's one sort of difference is is many Christian Zionists believe that the United States will be blessed by God, uh, or cursed by God, depending on how they they treat the state of Israel. Um, another one is sort of the the sort of prophecy oriented uh, Christian Zionists who think that um, part of the 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 prophecies being fulfilled um, in the book of Revelation or other parts of the Bible have to do with um, there being a state of Israel. They saw, they see 1948 as sort of this crucial prophetic year when um, when there's a there's a state of Israel again. Um, and they interpret uh, sort of current events and what the Israeli government does in light of these prophecies. And they're sort of always thinking about how are these things fitting into the grander plan that God has for the Jewish people? Most Jews, uh, or for one thing, most Jews, both in the United States and in, in Israel, don't think in, in these terms, in these religious terms. Their interest in Israel is often much more about either a sense of peoplehood, a sense of historic connection to the land, or a humanitarian connection, um, or a sense that uh, the Jewish people need a safe place from from anti-Semitism, um, particularly after after the Holocaust, uh, and so the, the sort of biblical uh, support for uh, the state of Israel that's something you find on on sort of the Orthodox Jewish uh, wing, but for most uh, American Jews and for most Israeli Jews, and most Israeli Jews are what we call secular Jews. They don't um, they don't uh, go to synagogue very often, and they don't consider themselves. Um, particularly religious, uh, they don't they don't think in these theological terms at all. So, do Christian Zionists care about Israel because of the possibility of the return of the Messiah? That's definitely part of that that prophecy orientation. Is is there's a sense that things have to happen in uh, in Israel in the Middle East for Jesus to come back, um, and I would. I would say that's that's widely held by Christian Zionists. The only thing that, and one of the things I try to show in 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 the stuff I write is that's not the only reason they're doing it. And that's uh, when you're when you're an outsider and you're not spending a lot of time sort of reading all their literature and and everything they say. Um, it can we can tend to sort of boil down what Christian Zionists are doing as basically trying to court the end of the world uh, by supporting Israel. And certainly there are people who do that, but I I definitely see a, a sort of more long lasting interest in Israel that has to do with that that blessing theology I mentioned also has to do with a sense of Christian guilt over how Christians historically have treated Jews uh, and have persecuted them whenever they've been in in Christian societies 
Um, those are also motivations that Christian Zionists have um, that sort of um, are alongside that messianic expectation as well. That's really interesting. So I'm going to tie back to our conversation from earlier when you said that in, in Old City Jerusalem, there are two quarters that are considered Christian in the Old Town. And whenever we study um, the Israeli-Palestinian situation, my students are always curious about the role of the Christians in Israel. They always ask, whenever we're talking about the Jews and about the Muslims of Israel, what, are, what do the Christians think about all this? Can you talk a little bit about what the Christians in the region say when tensions flare up between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Sure. Um one thing to, to just keep in mind is that the Christian population is very small um, in uh, in Israel and in the West Bank and in the, in the Middle East um, entirely. That's one of the, the sort of sad trends that we see in the Middle East is that the Christian population overall has really declined, mostly due to people leaving um, the region because of, of persecution and, and wars and, and violence, um, but also... Um, uh, for other reasons as well, but in Israel um, there are um, the twenty percent of Israelis are Arab, um, which a lot of people don't uh, recognize either that they have a very large Arab minority, and uh, a small percentage of those Arabs, about ten percent, are Christian, and they are mostly members of the Orthodox Christian uh, Church. And um, they have a totally different view on the Arab-Israeli conflict, on um, being Israeli citizens, than do Western Christians like evangelicals. Um, many of these uh, Arab Christians are very happy to be Israeli citizens. And in fact, some of them serve in the Israeli forces uh, and hold jobs uh, in Israel. But they tend to be far more uh, critical of the Israeli government than other Israelis are, and protect, particularly on issues of discrimination, of access to education, of, of sort of public funding for um, Arab uh, institutions. Uh, so they, they tend to be sort of a voice um, that is both supportive of the Zionist project in a way, though um, many of them feel like outsiders to a state that basically um, you know, if you think about Israel, you always think about it being a Jewish uh, state. A lot of the symbols of the state are Jewish. And these are Arab Israelis who sort of feel outside of the outside of the mainstream. Uh, there are also a lot of uh, Palestinian Christians who live in the West Bank um, and, and the Gaza Strip, and they tend to be um, a very beleaguered minority. They are obviously not... Um, the favorites of the Israelis, but they're also a, a religious minority within Palestinian society, as most Palestinians uh, are Muslim. And so they, um, depending on, on who you talk to, there's many factions and many groups um, and many different traditions um, in the Palestinian Christian community as well. Um, they tend to be um, very critical uh, of Israel uh, as well, um, but they're also uh, very uh, uh, fearful of um, of is Islamic extremists uh, as well, so they're they're stuck in a they're stuck in a hard place. Um, and then there's also a third group in Israel of Christians, which are what we call Messianic Jews or um, Jewish converts to Christianity, and they make up a small population in Israel as well. And they tend to be um, very very pro-Israel, um, and they don't really. Uh, interact with Arab Christians um, very much. 
Uh, but they have their own set of issues about being a religious minority um, in a state where Judaism is the predominant uh, religion as well. And so a lot of their um, issues and the things they bring to uh, the political debates are about sort of discrimination based on religion and uh, and related issues like that. So there's a lot of different uh, Christian, small Christian communities in Israel and in the, in the region. Um, and they I think one of the main ways you could generalize it is they're in very precarious positions, each of them. And so they often are um, sort of thinking through these issues, understanding that they are always under, that they're sort of minorities, always having to think about um, how they relate to the larger uh, uh, political powers in, in the region or in the country. That definitely just filled in a lot of gaps in my own knowledge as well, because whenever my students ask me that question, I always feel terrible and guilty that I can't answer it adequately. So now I actually have a resource to draw upon for my own further investigation. So I appreciate your answer a lot as a teacher. Right. So why does studying the geopolitical effects of this region on the world like matter? Like, What is the future of this? Yeah, well, I'm a you know I'm a historian, so I hate uh, I hate oh, prognosticating true. about about the future. Um, but I certainly think uh, the I mean the Middle East is very important. Uh, it's been the most important sort of region for U.S. foreign policy uh, going on uh, you know at least uh, back to the 1990s um, and sort of the post Cold War uh, period. And so there's just a lot of um, there's a lot of interests and resources. You think about uh, the role of oil in, in modern America. Um, there's just so many major issues that intersect with, with the Middle East that um, it's, hard, it's hard to really understand how Americans have conducted themselves in the world without understanding what they've done um, in the Middle East. I also think, though, sort of studying, particularly studying uh, how religion operates in the Middle East uh, and how it how it operates around the world in terms of how societies and nations relate to each other. Um, religion has become uh, a much more prominent topic that scholars talk about, that historians talk about uh, since particularly 9-11 for Americans um, when um, when this when religion really intersected with foreign policy in a very uh, tragic way, in a very uh, obvious way. And a lot of the scholarship, a lot of the, the sort of research on international relations in the last 20 years has talked about how um, religion is actually a very important force in how people understand who they are, how people understand how their nation should act in the world. Um, and this is an appreciation in a way that particularly during the uh, sort of the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, um, a lot of scholars and a lot of researchers assume that uh, religion actually wasn't sort of a core part of, of what uh, dip diplomats and policymakers thought about when they thought about um, uh, foreign policy. So there's a recognition that this is uh, this is important. And for that very reason, I guess, uh, it's a good reason to study it and to understand um, that uh, you know, most of the world, um, it, most societies are dominated by one religion or the other uh, or dominated by a fracture in in their communities over a religion. And so it's important to take that seriously and not just assume that those divisions and those conflicts are about something else, but that they're actually about uh, differences in, in belief and everything uh, that goes with that. And the hope is in part that by 
studying religion and understanding um, why people believe what they believe and what those beliefs entail, that there that we can think of new ways uh, to imagine uh, relations between peoples, relations between countries, besides thinking of just sort of clashing uh, differences between Muslims and Jews or Christians and Muslims, and try to think about new ways of relating that don't necessarily um, erase or try to bracket religion, but think about different ways of imagining those interreligious relationships um, so that in the future we can uh, hopefully, you know, not resort to violence um, or at least try to mitigate uh, some of the violence um, in the future. Can you recommend a few books for folks to check out if they want to know more? Uh, sure. Um, I'm just actually looking at um, my bookshelf uh, right now. Um, and there's um, a book by a, a historian named Richard Bullitt called The Case for Islamo-Christian Civilization, um, which came out in 2004. So it was, right, it was a few years after 9-11. Um, and that's an interesting book where uh, we often talk about a Judeo-Christian uh, tradition in America and how Jews and Christians have so much in common uh, because of the same sacred text and the same sort of values. Um, and Bullet makes the argument for a Islamo-Christian civilization, that there's a lot of values that Muslims and Christians uh, uh, share uh, share as well. So that's, um, that's one book um, that I could recommend. Um, and I'm thinking about a, a good sort of overview of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and particularly the role that the U.S. has played in that conflict is a book called Doomed to Succeed by uh, Dennis Ross, who's a long time. He worked he's worked for many administrations uh, sort of dealing with the diplomatic issues here. And it's a very readable, um, uh, very well written sort of history of the Arab Israeli conflict from the American perspective. Where can people find your work if they want to know more? Uh, so I, I run uh, my own website, so www.danhummel.com. I try to keep that up to date with um, whatever I'm, I, I've just published or I'm writing. And I also um, you know, keep updates on, on the book that's coming out next year as well. Dan, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I have learned so much from you today. I'm excited for A Covenant of the Mind coming out next year. Um, do you have a release date on that yet? Uh, it'll be uh, late summer. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And this has been an unbelievably productive discussion. I've learned so many new things. And I'm really grateful to you for spending this hour with me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.